day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, April 18th, 2014. This week, episode 323 is coming to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio at the controls is Jessica Lawson. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jess. Back in the studio C at McKee's Rocks, Pennsylvania, is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Pleasure. Always my pleasure, Joe. Gotcha, Cliff. And joining us later for our roundup will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich. Wow. We're going to have an interview today with disaster restoration contractor and veteran industry uh, expert, actually, Bob Packrell out of Johnson City, Tennessee. Looking forward to talking to Bob. We'll, of course, have our halftime and roundup when we bring in Dr. Wow. Before we get started, though, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N, dot com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean c-l-e-a-n-f-a-x.com and cmmonline.com please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of ieq radio when you inquire about their services and products okay you can download shows from the link on our website that says go to show you can stream them right from our homepage at iaqradio.com and of course you can get them from itunes go to their blog section type in iaq radio we also have continuing education credits available it's uh, if you email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com we'll get you out a quiz for the show and last but not least please visit the iaq training institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com let's turn it over to the z-man for today's iaq radio trivia question competing fellow IAQ radio listeners at being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you may text in your answer. The IAQ radio trivia question for Friday, April 18, 2014, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for well over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is www.trsca.org. Now for this week's two-part trivia question. Who coined the term spotless reputation, and where was it first used. Today's guest is Bob Packrell, his company's Spotless Restoration in Johnson City, Tennessee. Spotless Carpet Cleaners and Janitorial Services, Inc. was started in 1975 by Bob Packrell, 
Bob was a recent graduate of Milligan College and entered a very tough job market. In 1975, Bob found himself with no job, overeducated, underskilled, and with a wife expecting twins. The company evolved from its one-man startup in the janitorial and custodial business to the company it is today. A company voted 11 out of the last 12 years as the best carpet cleaner in the region and a company that is world-renowned in water damage mitigation, having won the prestigious Phoenix Award from the Restoration Industry Association in 2010 for its work on Cranstorf Castle. Bob's quirky commercials poke fun at him, but his work is serious business, and he's always been on the cutting edge of equipment and processes in the cleaning and restoration business. Bob, we welcome you, and thanks for joining us on IAQ Radio today. We have some intro music for you. Yeah, I've got you. Thank okay, you for the perfect. invitation. Well, how did you get from the north down to the south? Well, I attended college at uh, down here at Milligan College in uh, East Tennessee. A friend of mine was going there, and uh, I'm a trout fisherman at heart, and he said there's a trout stream runs through campus. That's well, that's a place for me. Okay, <laughs> cool. <laughs> Where are you from originally, Bob? From New Jersey. New Jersey guy. Okay. Well, you've lost that accent, it sounds like. Well, you never really lose it. You just kind of mute it. It comes back when you go up there. <laughs> Got it. And what led you from, you know, you were in the custodial work early on and carpet cleaning. Uh, what, what got you to kind of evolve into the disaster repair industry? Well, you know, getting into the business is easy when you can look under your sink and you you see that you have some window cleaner and some furniture polish. So that's how we got into the janitorial business. The the uh, diversification into the restoration business came, but I went to my first uh, Mid-South Professional Cleaners Association meeting in 1977. Met Cliff there. And that was at... Uh, the Holiday Inn North in Charlotte, North Carolina. And it virtually opened my eyes to things that I'd never seen or never dreamt of. Uh, I know I pulled up there. We had an old beat-up Volkswagen Beetle. And I met some folks that had a, uh, when, I, when I first met them in the parking lot, they got out of a sedan, DeVille Cadillac, and I, I looked at my wife and I said, you know, when I know what they know, we're, we're going to have a Cadillac, too. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it changed our life going to that meeting, and, and it, it it's caused me to look into other things. Uh, Cliff was there. Lloyd Weaver was there, who, you know, a lot of people consider the father of modern-day drying, um, that he started a lot of it. And Lloyd passed away a year, I guess about a year, year and a half ago. Right. So... Um, that was a thing that opened my eyes to it. Cliff? Yeah. What, are, what challenges do you think are the biggest in the business, and really how has it changed over the course of your extensive 40-year career? I think the, uh, well, of course, the application of modern technology. You know, I can remember a time when we used to go uh, – 
put your hand on a plywood subfloor, and if it felt wet, then it wasn't dry. If it wasn't wet to the touch, then it was dry. I mean, back in the 70s, that's about was the extent of it. And uh, now, you know, with all the instrumentation and the uh, the technology that's out there for us to, you know, moisture sensors and and things to do mapping and so forth, uh, it's changed the game. I noticed yeah. in some of your commercials, Bob, you you um, you feature the thermal imaging camera quite a bit. Uh, were you one of the early adopters in that area, or is that something you've just gotten involved in here in the last five years or so? I think we had one of the first ones that came out, uh, uh, infrared cameras when they first came out in the market, recognizing that not only being a tool that we could use, but that would be something the public would just be uh, be impressed with when they saw it. Yeah, you've got a great way of kind of getting people's attention. I I, I put a copy of a photo from your uh, one of your ads uh, on the on the announcement, and then uh, I looked at a couple of your ads, and they they're really interesting, Bob. I, I had a great time viewing a few of them. How do you come up with the ideas for some of these kind of off the wall quirky ads? I wake up in the middle of the night and write them down. <laughs> <laughs> so something comes to your mind, you get up and write it down, huh? Do you have yeah. a, do you have like a professional crew that helps you with that with you know putting it all together once you've got the idea? We use the uh, local media. We advertise with uh, with some network television, some cable, and we uh, we use their utilize their folks to do our production. And uh, but basically the the mindset, the ideas are online, and we just move forward with them uh, and let them help us enhance it. Are you still doing these types of commercials? Still doing them. And that, gonna do, uh, I think the next one's going to be Babe Ruth hitting in the cleanup spot and cleaning the bases when he runs around. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we're going to do that one. You know, and listeners, if you get a chance, you got to check out some of these commercials. Have they? I assume they've been. You know, uh, they've worked for you. They, we've been very successful. Uh, uh, with this plan, we've we started in uh, in two thousand and one running the commercials, and uh, in all honesty, uh, we can't walk down the street. My son or I, we can't go down the street without somebody saying we love the commercials and uh, and uh, have you know just been watching them for years. Can't wait to see the next one. So yeah, it's been real good for us. Well, I noticed too that now. You know, with all the uh, social media and the computers and internet being, you know, the big thing, you have them all posted on. Is that on your website? I don't. I I did some Google search and I found a whole bunch of them together. Yeah, that is on the on on our website, uh, spotlessrestoration.com, dot com, and it's uh, uh, under the commercial archives. It looks like you, you find got them a, on there. Do you have a Facebook page too, or something like that? Um, we do, but. I can't give you any information on that. I don't, your baby, I don't know the information to give you. <laughs> no problem, Bob. Cliff, let's turn it back to you. Yeah, Bob, uh, what about insurance companies and insurance adjusters? Uh, you know, Over the course of your career, have they gotten better? Have they gotten worse? Or are they pretty much the same? I think initially uh, 
it was more of a relationship business. Uh, you knew the guys that were on the ground looking at the same job you were looking at. Uh, so it was it was more of a relationship between you and a local adjuster. Now we're finding a lot of this being handled by desk adjusters from they're in different states even that uh, you know we're working with these folks and it's all being done with through technology. You're sending you're emailing pictures, you're emailing uh, moisture readings, you're emailing uh, uh, descriptions of things. Uh, to some desk adjusted, it may be in Ohio or Massachusetts or some other state or city. Um, so, are, it, it sounds like you're a little bit frustrated with this. Uh, I, I am. I think it it was a relationship business before, and I would like it to be a relation, relationship business again. But uh, I think we're gravitating more and more towards a. Uh, Oh, just like your health insurance plans um, with the preferred provider systems and uh, in-network type things. And I think we're beginning to see that. And and the work in the industry is becoming, in my opinion, commoditized. And I think that's unfortunate because I don't think you can make service and quality service a commodity. You know, Bob, you, you talk about... Um dealing with these folks long distance. Is that true with the um, carriers that have their own adjusters as well as with the independents? I, I think the public adjusters still come to you, obviously, or come to the site, but with the independents uh, and, and the adjusters that work directly for the carriers, do you see any difference there? We, uh, you know, we find uh, a lot of, uh, at the local level, we have uh, some of the larger companies have have uh, offices here, and they have local adjusters that work for the larger companies. But a lot of the others, and and even some of the big ones, uh, have location. You, you know, have desk adjusters that handle us almost entirely. They they handle a claim completely from uh, West Tennessee or uh, Ohio, and uh, and deal with it purely over over. Uh, the internet. Hmm. How does that affect the customers? I mean, I would think the customer would be a little upset not to see their adjuster at least come in and check out their site and make sure, you know, things are going all right. Well, I, I think, again, it comes down to your service that you're providing. If you provide good quality service and can answer the questions and the adjusters are you know, able to convey that you're, you are or are not doing the right things. I think it works out. Hmm. So in spite of them not being on site, it's, it does work out in that respect. Right. Seems like it would maybe even make the client a little more, um, lean on you a little bit more because you're the only person they see or your people are the only ones they actually see on the site. Well, a lot of times that, that we're the only people, I, I know back, in uh, January, let's let's talk about the year of the freeze. Uh, there was so much work going on that uh, you know adjusters maybe couldn't see a project till weeks after it was completed. That's going to be tough for the homeowners trying to wondering. You know, how do they handle? I hear complaints about 
um, the preferred provider programs. You mentioned that. Are, are you getting situations where you go out and look at a project and then a preferred provider gets brought in? I mean, are they talking to their client on the phone and saying, hey, here's our list of people? Or How do they handle that? Yep. Yeah, we've had that, and it's uh, that's a difficult situation. I, I I believe it is interfering with contracts and and uh, whatnot. And and you know, of course, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a guy that's doing the work. But I think that it's a uh, you, you know, it's uh, it's overstepping. If we're on a job and whatnot, then then it's our customer. Uh, we've had a 30 year relationship with, and then. Uh, to be told that we have to leave in preference of some somebody that's on a list for whatever reason or however they got on the list. Are you on any of these lists? I assume you have to play ball to some degree. We, we're not on any preferred provider lists. We get all ours from our, our advertising and word of mouth. Wow. Good for you, Bob. All right, Cliff, let's turn it over to you. Yeah, Bob, over the course of your career, there has been a lot of changes in building materials. You know, when you first started, you know, asbestos might be in shingles that would be on a roof, might be in siding, might be in the tile that was on the floor of the building, might be wrapped around pipes. Uh, there were issues with lead uh, paints and, and, and so on and so forth. Do you think that restoration contractors need to be concerned about asbestos-containing materials and other hazardous materials today, or do you think that hazmat is something in the past? Uh, I think it's uh, something that uh, occupies our mind here on a daily basis. We actually had a meeting this morning where we were discussing that if uh, ceramic floors have to be taken out, we, we want to make sure that the grout itself is tested. Um, I have a, a uh, note from the EPA that we, we made an inquiry, and uh, they have not established any exemptions for building materials. Or, uh, forgive me, they have not established any ex exemptions for inspecting a building for the present of asbestos based upon the date of construction or age of the structure. So what that tells me is if there's never been a time placed on it, the last line of this document says building materials are also imported from other countries where asbestos is still used in a manufacturing process. So it seems to me it's becoming into to, uh, materials today. And I think uh, to err on the side of caution is probably smarter than to disregard um, the possibility. So, yes, we, we are sampling floor coverings and uh, different materials that we consider suspect. And what do you do? Do you contain the area and then, you know, have somebody rush these you know, to a lab for results? That is correct. Mm-hmm. Now, have you trained some? Gotten some of your own people trained as asbestos inspectors, or you do work closely with another local company? Most pretty much, we use a uh, an environmental specialist and an IH to come and get samples and and uh, you know direct us with protocols and whatnot. And then, if, of course, if the material is is asbestos containing material, we hire a, a licensed as best as abatement contractor to take care of the remediation. 
You know, it sounds like that's gotten very complicated over the years, Bob. Is that um, something your customers kind of uh, balk at? They, they want you to go ahead and tear it out anyway, or is that just, hey, this is the way we do business? The customers, the homeowners, appreciate what we're doing. The insurance companies, on the other hand, I think, for the most part, are, are many of them are resistant to this. Um, um, yeah, we have some difficulty with some of them getting paid for doing testing. In all honesty, we have materials tested, and we end up, a lot of times, uh, we don't get compensated for it, but it's the right thing to do. And uh, I've got a sign that hangs over my desk it says that, that if you concern yourself with doing the right thing, then you don't have to second-guess that decision. And I believe in that. You know, I'm, I'm curious... Um with respect to that issue, that's a tough, it's a really tough issue. You, you've got to sample so many different things. How commonly do you find asbestos-containing materials in, say, residential structures that are fairly new? Let's say you got a fairly new home. Do you do you run across it very often? I don't find it on a frequent basis, but the gentleman with which we work told me he's found it in homes as late as '93, hmm. and. You know, I'm I'm not in a position to make it to, to to take a chance. Not with my personnel, not with a homeowner, and uh, not as a representative of some insurance company being out there doing this doing this work uh, for the homeowners. You know, it sounds like you've had to deal with this issue quite a bit. And one of the questions I get from other restoration companies is when the insurance company refuses to pay for these services that you're required by law to do, how do you handle that with the insurance company? It sounds like sometimes you eat it, but before you do, do you try telling them, you know, with a letter that, hey, this is our requirements under the law, or how do you handle it? Yeah, that is uh, <clears throat> that is what we try to do. We try to impress upon them that uh, um, this is the way it has to be done. Actually, we were in a house the other day, and had an adjuster look at a piece of vinyl. I said, what would you guess the year of manufacture on his vinyl was? And three of us were in the house, three different people. We all made a guess of somewhere in the 70s, but the vinyl wasn't produced till the 90s or wasn't installed till the 90s. Let me reword that. So, But everybody looking at it thought that's an older piece of material than that. So we had sampled it, and, and it's another one of those those companies that uh, is reluctant for us to be doing sampling. Hmm. Do you know how it, the sample came out? It was negative. Okay, but you did the right thing. Yes, sir. And I, like I say, if you do the right thing, you don't have to second-guess what you did. Hey, Bob, can we talk a little bit about sampling and whether or not it's destructive to these materials or not? I mean... You know, is, are there methods by which you can take a sample, and if it's negative, you know, there's no adverse effect appearance-wise or, uh, you know, on the material? Well, again, we, we turn this over to a uh, to an IH, and, and but, yeah, there are ways to get samples where you don't impact the material. Okay. Um, you know, it doesn't take a large, it doesn't take a one-foot-by-one-foot one square, so to speak. To uh, to get a sample, a small just sliver of materials enough to get a, an adequate sample out of it. Good. Let's talk a little 
little bit about mold. Personally, are, are you afraid of mold? And, you know, can you comment on, you know, the industry's re- response to mold? Do you think we respond properly? Do you think we under-respond? Do you think we over-respond? Uh, first, we are not mold remediators. So we do not do remediation projects for mold. Uh, am I afraid of mold? I don't ever want it to turn upon a job I've dried out. <laughs> okay. And, and you know, and as far as should we be concerned with it, I think definitely. Uh, we do use some of these materials to go ahead and uh, if we find a little spot mold somewhere, we do use material to hold it in place and go ahead and bring about drying and then let it be remediated at a later time. So it's, if you had to choose one, which would you say is uh, scarier uh, to you, mold or sewage and why? Uh, definitely sewage. Uh, uh, why the pathogenic nature of sewage? Uh, there, There's a vast variety of pathogens in that, and, uh, and you have to be... I would think more concerned with it. My opinion would be it would be the one I would be most concerned with. I mean, you said you guys do not do mold cleanup. Do you do sewage cleanup? Yes, we do. Seems kind of weird that you deal with uh, more potentially has. It seems weird that you deal with the material or the microorganisms that you think are potentially more hazardous than. I don't know. Can you comment? Yeah, we we had just never set ourselves up to uh, pursue the mold work. Okay. And consequently, don't go after it. I see. And I, do you have another local? I assume you have another local contractor. You you refer those jobs to, or? Yes, sir. Actually, we have a couple of them. I see. And maybe it's just not worth the you know worth the headache uh, if you've got other comp you know other companies out there that you can refer it over to. I was curious about that too, Cliff, so I'm glad you asked. Um, I want to go back to your crazy TV ads. How did you how did you come up with the idea to even start doing these kind of unique, different ads? Did you see like a used car salesman on TV doing it or uh, just some other way? Well, it uh, we had to get ourselves recognized since, since we're not program-driven. We are not... Uh, uh, getting a lot of work through the insurance industry. We had to do something to get ourselves noticed on TV. And I thought, what better way to tie it than to bring a smile to somebody's face, poke a little fun of yourself, and then explain what it is you're going to do. And and the commercials, quite honestly, you know, when the, when the water hits me, uh, that's the problem you've got when you wake up in the morning and your house is flooded. It reminds you every time huh, of what people go through. Yeah. You know, so, uh, they're, they're great commercials. I really enjoyed them, actually. And I think they're also educational, Bob. And then you did a five-and-a-half-minute, I believe, video just kind of educating people about how you drive buildings, the different equipment you use. I, I thought that was well done. And it looks like you kind of uh, have chosen certain 
equipment over the years. I'm wondering how you make that decision. Do you do you go to uh, conferences or training programs or both? And then, you know, you, it seems like you stick to like one line of dehumidifiers, one line of uh, air movers, etc. How do you make that decision? Well, uh, actually, we've got a wonderful resource just 60 miles from here in the American Drying Institute. Jerry Blaylock's got a school uh, and a flood house just 60 miles from here. So we are privileged by the fact that it's accessible to us and we can go down there and get training. All our people are IICRC, WRTs, and most of our employees, even our office manager, has been through Jerry's class down there at the ADI. We had Jerry on the show not long ago. He was very interesting, uh, very interesting show. Enjoyed having him and getting his perspective. He was also on the cover of the first IICRC technical journal with some uh, drying information as well. That was an excellent article on uh, vapor pressure and drying wood that uh, that he had in there. Yeah, we had a lot of interest for, for, with uh, about that article. Um, I know that when I was at two recent trade shows, and at each one, the IICRC had a stack of those technical journals on the table, and they disappeared real quick. So. Uh, there appeared to be a great deal of interest. Bob, we've got to take a little break and, and thank our sponsors. Um, we'll be right back after these messages with Bob Packrell out of Johnson City, Tennessee. We're doing a little discussion of uh, disaster restoration issues here today. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanclenfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview with Bob Packrell. We're at Spotless Restoration. And, you know, Bob, that's a question I had for you. Did you change the name to Spotless Restoration? No, it used to be Carpet Cleaners and Janitorial Services. Yes, we have made an addition to it as DBA Spotless Restoration. Gotcha. 
Cliff, let me turn it over to you. I know you guys go way back, and I've been dominating the questions a little too much here. Why don't you go ahead and take a couple? Well, I, I, I've got a couple, Bob. I'd like to – how big is your service area? How big's Johnson City, Tennessee, and, and how far do you typically travel? We uh, work in a radius of about 60 miles around around Johnson City, and it, this area is called the Tri-Cities. So you have three cities about all similar in size, about 55 to 65,000 people, and then that metropolitan area of about, I think the metro area is about 310 maybe. Okay, good. I think what I'd like to do is move into you know, your greatest hit or the, you know, the project that you're most proud of. Uh, you know, and I'd like you to tell us a little bit about it. You know, some of the things I'd like to know is, you know, how did you get the job? Um, how did you, you know, develop the pricing? Uh, what sort of obstacles did, you know, you and your staff encounter on it? And I'll just turn it over to you. All right. Well, our claim to fame is, is uh, the restoration on a Kransdorf Castle. As you mentioned in the intro, we, we received the Phoenix Award for doing this project. And it uh, it is a uh, twenty five thousand square foot home. It's a residence here in Johnson City. Um, in January, it got hit by lightning in two thousand and nine. January it got hit by odd thunderstorm came through, struck this, struck the, one of the spires on the castle roof, started the roof on fire. The fire department came. Put uh, 80,000 gallons of water in the building to put the wa- put the fire out, and uh, there was a tremendous amount of contents in the home. And as you can imagine, when you furnish a castle, you furnish a castle with things that came from other castles. So we had a uh, a vast amount of contents to move uh, to deal with. Uh, I got in the next morning with the homeowner and looked at it. Who called me direct? They called me, asked me. Uh, he knew me from, from in town. He's also a car dealer. There was no insurance on the house. He called me and he said, look, this is, this is where we're at. Come take a look. Tell me what you can do. We'll move forward with a plan. Um, got him to go along. Got Finally got him to get on, on my way of thinking that we could save things. He had it overnight had two contractors come in and tell him he had to gut the entire building, which would have been a, a tragedy to have done that. Um, there were things in this in this house that are still in this house that were uh, irreplaceable. And uh, in the uh, entrance foyer, they had a big medallion over the ceiling. It was about 25 feet around it, uh, all hand-carved, hand-painted plaster. A uh, beautiful piece. It was in there. The ceilings were crafted from the clay where they excavated the building site. And we were able to dry all these materials. There was 15,000 feet of hardwood floors that we saved. Um, and there are nine different types of uh, floor coverings that were hard floors that we were able to dry out. And like I said, they put the... Uh, about 80,000 gallons of water went through this house to s- suppress the fire. And 
as far as the content went, we hired a moving company to move the contents in the house 100 yards over to a basketball gym that they had on the property. And they could maintain their own security since they had security staff and we didn't have to be responsible for what amounted to millions of dollars worth of content. And there was a very good article in uh, CNR magazine on that restoration. I remember. A couple of things. Uh, I guess the, the two contractors that, that came in, were they... Did they have restoration experience or or not? Uh, one did and one didn't. Okay. And and uh, uh, you know, un- un- unfortunately, uh, you know, again, this this fella did not have insurance on the house. He he was looking to save whatever he could. Right. And uh, it you know, it's a different mindset. Restorers and construction demolition people have a different mindset. Right. And, and we don't do any reconstruction work. We're pure mitigators. We dry and restore, and we do not do repair work. So there's there's no motivation for us to uh, to be wanting to tear things out. Gotcha. Cliff, I want to note for the listeners, I included a link to the CNR Magazine article in the show announcement. And while we're talking about this, you may want to take a look at that. Just beautiful place. Um, very complicated project. Um, I'm curious, Bob, how, why did someone decide to build a castle in Johnson city? Um, this guy is a a very high profile car dealer and it fits his persona. (laughs) He built it. And, and actually, he was a general contractor on it. Um, there were uh, there's a million dollars worth of fireplace mantles in that house that came from across the uh, across Europe. They, they had them imported from across Europe. So it, it really is quite a quite a uh, structure. So you know, yes, if you can get on online there and take a look at it, it's really a beautiful beautiful home. I was most impressed with that. Uh, with the ceiling in the dining room where they had it cast, they actually had a kiln built out there on the property, and kiln fired the uh, the ceiling tiles in the dining room as they excavated the property. Amazing! It's just fascinating. The photos are awesome. Why? I'm just curious. Did you ever figure out why he didn't have insurance on this massive, gorgeous property? Well, he explained it to me that he. Uh, it was a uh, gamble, and he was a gambler. <laughs> and, uh, you know, for the cost of what the insurance was, he felt he was within, and, and, and they are virtually within 400 yards of a fire hall. And, you know, and, and his thinking was, if for this amount of money, uh, you know, uh, we're this close to fire services, and if something's going to take it out, it'd probably be a fire. So that's... I think what his mindset was. I can't really speak for him, but I think that's what the mindset was. That I... worked. Cliff? Well, you know, you have, you know, the, every time I, I, I hear your voice or every time I, I see you, uh, I smile because you have an incredible sense of humor. And I'd like you to tell the, the, the audience 
just some of the funny things that have just happened to you over the course of your career? Well, the the bulk of the funny thing, well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. We went down to Nashville, 19, 1980, went to Nashville to the State Claims Association meeting. And I don't know how familiar you are with country music and Marty Stewart and uh, Hank Williams and Porter Wagner, but everybody had these fancy suits with all the rhinestones and everything on them. So uh, I had a suit made for me. said the king of queen with done in rhinestones. I had brooms airbrushed on the legs and, again, with glitter and rhinestones and... and uh, you know that awkward moment when they, the band is getting ready to start playing and the first people, nobody's going out there to dance? Right, right. That awkward moment, I walked out in the middle of the floor and just stood there. And a spotlight came on me and the guy said, I don't know who this gentleman is, but I'm going to have to introduce him to you. <laughs> and it was a nice, free introduction the Tennessee State Claims Association, and uh, we got my picture at the in the centerfold of the magazine with the president that year, the King of Clean and the president of the Cleaner uh, the president of Claims Association. So, uh, the King and, of and people still laugh about that. They still call me the King. They still holler at me. So, I love your business that, card too. The business card has that big old. Uncle Sam hat on there, and it's it just got up, got my attention right away, Bob. Well, that's uh, that's something else, you know. We, you know, Uncle Sam wants you. Well, I want your flood. <laughs> that's that's what that's all about. Can you tell the the audience a little bit about why you became an off an author, and you know the the books that you wrote? Well. Dick Burnson told me when, when like I said, they, they, he said, give something back. I asked him when they were going to come help me with that rug. He said, give something back. I've tried to be a person that I've been successful in this industry, and I love this industry. And I know you love it, Cliff. Because in 1982, I asked you to come to Elon College, North Carolina, and speak on a program for me when I was at Mid-South. And you told me, I can't charge you because I love this industry and I make my living in it. And I've never forgotten that. So that's that's why I wrote books. That's why I go to programs and speak. And, uh, and I'm involved because of the impact and the influence of folks like yourself that have, have impacted my life. You know, you're very kind, but... Yeah, tell tell the audience about the books. I mean, I, I uh, you know I felt they were required reading, and I and I know when I was actively uh, training, you know, we bought them from you by the case, and I, I just gave them to every student that was coming through. There were just so many lessons that that you learned that you put down, you know, in the book, and each each you know there would be like one chapter. Uh, you know, one huge lesson. Uh, it was just really, really well done. Well, thank you. And it, you, you know, it was an acute little way to go ahead and uh, and get some frustration out because we were we were handling at the time a, a big volume of firework. We were probably doing twenty five to thirty fires 
puffbacks and fires a month, you know, which was which is pretty good volume for the market we're in, you know. Right, right. It's real big, isn't and, it? Uh, and the, uh, well, I'm sitting here looking at one of them where, it, one of your favorites. What one is it? My favorite, one of my favorites? Yeah. Probably was the the ceiling fan, the, the odor problem and the ceiling. The, the Wheel of Fortune. Wheel of Fortune. The Wheel of Fortune. So, uh, you know, the, the adjuster called and told us to get it taken care of because she's driving me crazy. And I, I went to the house, and there wasn't any odor. And frankly, there was no way I was going to get a check signed either. So I taped the 50 to a ceiling fan. And when she returned, I asked her to check the fan and see if it didn't smell better. Because I had treated it. Remarkably, the odor was gone. <laughs> and uh signed a satisfaction statement as well as a check. But the lesson here, this is where the 80-20-30 principle applies. 80% of your problems come from 20% of your customers. And if you can eliminate the 20%, you'll make 30% more money doing something profitable instead of wasting time arguing. So I love it. That, <laughs> that's what it was. And this is all fictitious. <laughs> Let me put you my disclaimer. It's all fiction. It's all fiction. The names and dates uh, are to protect the innocent. <laughs> now you called them. You, you called them first degree burned and second degree burned. Uh, is that in reference to the fact that you've learned, you got burned on some of these lessons, or that that seemed like the proper title to 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 call a book? You know. Okay. Okay. It seemed seemed like the best way. And I was telling Cliff when we were down at the uh, restoration industry convention in Orlando last week. I said. I feel like I need to write one first degree burned only to be drowned like a rat. <laughs> We're doing so much water damage work now, you know? Well, so, what? give us one more lesson from the book, if you would, Bob. One more lesson from the book. I just like to get... When we, when we do these shows, I love to get a tip or or two from uh you know you've been around for a long time, you've got some young people coming up, they're starting a business, they're in the disaster restoration world. What what tip can you give them from the book that that they may find uh you know useful down the road? The lesson here is photograph or document even the most obvious damage. It took sixty five dollars to get a signature on the check. And it became history. Uh, documentation. If, if I had to speak one word that that represents the industry as I see it today, um, it would be documentation. If you have <clears throat> you have good documentation, you can get paid for your work, and you can you can validate everything you've done. So. Um, I, I can't impress upon people enough the value of that. You follow your drying standards. You document what you're doing. And uh, that should be enough to keep you out of trouble and get you paid on your jobs. Who does the documentation in your company? Is that tough for you to get the, the field supervisors to do that, or do you have a, a person in the office that's their job? All our technicians are... Uh, WRTs, and most of them have been to the American Drying Institute 
and Jerry stresses it, and so do they at the uh, WRT instructors by doing documentation. But we are incessant about it to the point of uh, of uh, obsessive about the documentation being done on our work because we know that it is the it's the thing that's going to get you into trouble to keep you out of it. And I, I want you to real quick. Uh, you mentioned documenting even the obvious things with photographs. Did, is there something that led to that? Uh, did you have a, a job where that caused you a problem? Mr. Zlotnick taught me that. Okay. When he mentioned Hoover marks. And I said, what is a Hoover mark? Well, you keep talking about Hoover marks. What is a Hoover mark? And he said, a Hoover mark's where they've taken that vacuum cleaner and banged it in that chair for 10 years, and you're going to get blamed for it. Ah, okay. I like that. Yeah, I did too, and I've never forgotten it. (laughs) I like that, Cliff. Very well done. Cliff, let's turn it over to you. I know you have some more questions before we go to our I I do, Bob. How did your son learn to read? Well, the the twins that came into my life when I started this business, I was I was eagerly seeking information on anything I could get to find out more about the industry. That's early on. They were uh, just babies, seventy five, six, seven. They were babies, but when we we would get a hold of an installation and cleaning specialist or sanitary maintenance. Uh, I would sit there with the kids, and there was one on each side of me, and they would point at things in the in the magazine: floor buffers, mop buckets, uh, vacuum cleaners, and actually, their formative formative years of of learning how to read was done there. And as I know, we were at a at a uh, a training seminar. And when they were inter- you know, when you stand up and introduce yourself as to how long have you been in it, like Matt said, I was born into it. <laughs> I've been in it my whole life from when I was a little baby. So, and that's it. We've got a grandson. He comes down here. We've got him a set of boots, and we put him down in the in the in the rug bath and let him scrub rugs. He likes to scrub rugs. So we. <laughs> We're teaching him at the age of five. So wow. that's great. That's great. So in your situation, the next generation, at least your son, definitely wants to take over the business. Yeah, he's he's got the passion, and it's 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 all about passion, and and uh, and uh, and I'm proud that he has the passion. We we both have it for the industry, and I met a young man at the at the. Uh, the restoration convention. He said, "Sit across the table from me in a restaurant." That the next part of the table over there, and and, uh, and I looked at him, and, and and I said, "You're you're here with Rhea," and he said, "Yeah." And I said, "I can tell it in your eyes. You've got the passion." And he said, "I really do have the passion. I love it, and and I just enjoy being around people that love it." It's great to have you here, and, and, and it shows uh, that you love it. Um, I'm curious if there's any other lessons learned over the years that you'd like to share with our audience, Bob. I've got a couple of them, you know. That uh, Another one is uh, make sure you have your uh, work authorization signed, because otherwise you're like a lamb being led to slaughter. 
you you need to have your paperwork signed. And the other one is the the magic word. My mother always told me the magic word was please, but I found out the magic word is free. So if you can ever work free into a, I'll do this for you for free, uh, to get something resolved. If it's some little old, little something that doesn't cost you much. We used to uh, bring a, a small little bouquet of flowers or, or you know, a, a potted plant to our customers when we finished. I know it wasn't actually free, but when you handed them to the lady, it was it was a free gift to her, and it uh, it went went miles. Great tips, Cliff. Uh, I got a couple of questions. Uh, number one, what tips, if any, uh, do you have? with working with family and business? Oh, you could probably share some of, some of these with us. You've done it too, haven't you? Well, yeah. I think it's, I think it's patience. Turn for worse, right? How? Excuse me, I didn't hear I think it's patience. If I had to, to put it down to one word, you need to learn patience because not every decision your family member is going to make is the same decision that you would make and you got to learn to listen because right now uh, the rugs cleaning division of our business was Matt's idea and I frankly didn't see it and he did see it and I got to give him credit for it that we're we've uh, built a rug pit and it and and we're very active in the the rug cleaning business now and that was his decision to do so and I probably wouldn't have. I'll tell you, I remember when in our service business I really found cleaning loose rugs in, in a rug pit very therapeutic. I mean I, I really you know, I would just get mentally get lost just doing it. I I just really, really was into it. But I gotta yeah. understand. Um, if you had a business mulligan or a project mulligan or do-over, what would it be? I think it would be rethinking jumping into the ceiling cleaning business when they were using chlorinated products. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If you remember back then. Oh, I remember. I remember, remember the stories of what people were doing with you know, like we put down the drop cloths, uh, and you know when they would remove the drop cloth, the carpet under the drop cloth would be the original color, <laughs> and wherever it was exposed, it would be a couple of shades later. And you know the problems with those chemicals and copy machines and stuff. Oh, like. all of it. And, and you know, my hair is white today. When you saw me. <laughs> A couple of weeks ago, my hair was snow white, but it was snow white a couple of times when I came out of doing some ceiling cleaning jobs. <laughs> so. I hear you. Um, let's see. Um, you want to go to the roundup, Cliff? Pardon me? You want to go to the roundup? Yeah, we can. We, we got can. about let's, five uh, minutes left. Hang on. Questions. Oh. We'll be right back, Bob. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. 
let's bring our good doctor, Dr. Dietrich Wow in. Good afternoon, Dieter. Do we have you? I am here. I listen carefully. I know you're not a cleaning and disaster restoration guy, but you always have some interesting comments. Oh, sure. I certainly like uh, to go trout fishing. <laughs> Unfortunately, any university that I attended didn't have a trout stream going through the compass. Nah, at that time, there wasn't any trout living in those areas. <laughs> Pittsburgh River. Here in Carnegie, I have a, a friend over here. He goes fishing right around the corner. He gets 16, 18-inch trouts down here. I didn't even know there was anything living in this little creek, yeah, whatever it was. Anyway, um, uh, certainly a couple of interesting things, and uh, I can associate with some of them. I learned how to clean when I was five or six. That happened to be during and just after the war. When I lived in a little village, there was no soap, no warm water, no gas, no heat. My mother and my sister and I, we had to cut trees down and split the wood and make fires and what have you. And there was no soap, there was no tight detergent, and there were no washing machines. Well, miraculously, I survived that one. <laughs> 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 another, uh, I have another... Uh, 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 I'm not... Uh, in the cleaning business at all. I'm interested in some of the chemicals which are being used. And maybe Bob has a couple of comments on that. Several years ago, in a very nice house in a very expensive neighborhood uh, here in Pittsburgh, uh, I, uh, I was called in, and uh, the people who were living there, they had money, they certainly... Uh, they had bought the house, I would say, in the million-dollar range. I mean, it, you know, it, it was a nice place. They couldn't live in there. And they had, and probably Bob knows these horror stories, or for that matter, Cliff also. Somebody came in and first cleaned the carpet. And that didn't work out all right. Somebody was sneezing. I probably know why, but that doesn't matter. Then somebody else came in said, oh, we had a little chemical and we, we, we cover that up. Well, that didn't work. Another guy came and said, hey, you need to have the ductwork cleaned. So they cleaned the ductwork and sprayed another chemical in there. I got there when about five chemicals were applied. In fact, I'm very insensitive to irritation, but I didn't feel good in that house. You know, I had eye, nose, and throat irritation. I said, hey, I wouldn't want to live here 24 hours a day. And probably Bob has been in situations like this, may have been called in after somebody screwed up, and I said, what are we doing now? And I stopped here for a moment. Bob, Cliff, any comments? Well, yeah, I, I guess my, my comment, theater is the last person that gets tagged is it. So generally, you, know, you either don't want to take responsibility, you know, for what's previously occurred without some sort of waiver or. Well, yeah. Oh, I understand. Yes. 
and chemical chemical sensitivities are getting to be a big thing. There are a lot of people that have these chemical sensitivities, and, and it's a real thing. I don't think it's a psychosomatic thing. I think it's a real thing. Yeah, another thing. In fact, you were talking about ceiling uh, cleaning. I need two jobs done in my uh, house. I have to uh, clean the ceiling in the kitchen uh, where there is, you know, some. And interestingly, I started in one spot with just with water. Most of it came up and I saw white underneath where the other stuff was brownish, yellowish. And that hasn't been done in a long time. Should I use uh, TSP, trisodium phosphate, or just water and perhaps a little bit of a detergent? What is a good prep if you want to paint it again? I think it would. <clears throat> excuse me. I think it would depend on what the what the surface, the painted surface, is like. But it can be washed, you know, with or without chemicals. Washed easily, and it is, uh, you know, drywall, you know, standard stuff. Right, you know, and there is a. Uh, I painted it years ago, and it's a water-based paint from PPG, or I don't even know, probably PPG, and that I used over there, and it's like a, I, I'd say almost a semi-gloss, but it's certainly not glossy, or eggshell. I think they call that. Ah, uh -huh. that's correct. Yes, an eggshell paint. Uh, but, I mean, just wash it down. Is that good enough? And then yeah. put another coat of paint on it? Put Maybe want to put a coat of sealer on it, depending on what you've got uh, up on there. You know, how well it cleans. Yeah, okay. I think, miraculously, it is coming off very nicely. I, I was surprised when I, when I tried it. And the other question I have... Uh, you know, I know you know, and Joe knows, and we talked about it on the show. And in fact, I just got one of those little flyers that's called the Clipper Magazine over here, where local people uh, advertise for all kinds of things, from restaurants uh, to break jobs on cars and what have you. And there are, of course, if there are at least two or three uh, duct cleaning services. And I know that nobody in the world can officially or correctly clean my ducts for, you know, thirty nine ninety five. Uh, that's that's nonsense. That's like, hey, I make a complete car inspection, I check everything and I charge you ten dollars for it. I don't want to go to that guy. I have a and I know we don't want to talk about prices, but a ballpark figure. Let's, I'm, I'm in a room. In fact, I need to have it also done. That's the other job that has to be done. The only thing is I have a nightmare thinking about it because that's my office, and it's basically 12 by 24, and there's a nice carpet in there. I don't know whether I should cap, uh, cut the carpet out and get a new one in or have it cleaned. What would be, and I have to take care of bookshelves and desks. It's unbelievable. That's one of the reasons why I haven't done yet because the missionary work is so much more than cleaning the carpet. But a, a good carpet cleaning job, how much should that cost approximately for a room? Is $100 a good estimate? Is 100 I know it shouldn't be, and I wouldn't hire somebody who does it for 1995. Forget it, yeah. Uh, again, it would depend on the location, the amount of soiling, what you got to have done, and how much has to be moved. But forty to sixty dollars wouldn't be out of range. Okay, so 
Yeah, that, 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 that sounds all right. And the only thing is I probably have to hire somebody for $500 to get the furniture out that the, that the cleaners can come in. Yeah, Dieter's got a lot of stuff. Uh, oh, good God, yes. You know, sometimes there's no, you know, if you put, if you start out with clean carpet, you put furnishings on it that are, you know, quite heavy bookshelves. That and, they, and they are, but I was smart. I use polycarbonate underneath it so, in other words, the legs and so on are not digging in. The weight is distributed over, yeah, how is that? It's 18 by 3 feet or something like that. So there is plastic underneath, and uh, which probably helps. It certainly is better than putting, I mean, these things, uh, uh, I mean, they're several hundred pounds each. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, right, so but many, I, I guess the key to a theater is that sometimes it doesn't get dirty under there. You know, if if that is covering the carpet and that carpet's relatively clean, yeah. and I'm not sure whether Bob will agree or not, but a lot of times, you know, that stuff can be left in place and you clean around it. Yeah, certainly. A heavy furniture. Right. Yeah, well, I'm looking at it right. I'm sitting here on one of the desks, and there's the identical desk next to me over here. Right. And they, I can't lift the one side. Uh, I mean, it is a job to get those in and out. And they're on top of it. They're full. Okay, I can get the drawers out. That's no big deal. And the, the printers and uh, computers on top of it, I can throw those out or take them out. Peter, there are certain tools that... Uh, cleaners use that attach to their equipment, which gives them access, you know, underneath a desk, and you know they can kind of you know get on their hands and knees and and use these other tools, you know, which would give them access. So it may be unnecessary to, you know, oh, that, to hey, that would be a great solution to my problem because I want it done. I mean, it 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 should be done. Absolutely. And uh, I'm talking 20 years here yeah, that I had it uh, newly installed. That is okay. Again, I learned something, no doubt about it. And uh, it is interesting. I can't do too much of the technical input over here. But I, as Bob said, and, and also Clifford said, when you apply chemicals, you better know what you are applying and how you are applying. You can... Hey, that's the same thing if you take uh, chemicals called medicines. You, you better know what you are swallowing over there and whether there's interference with something else. And you need, you need good advice on how to do that right. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely, Dieter. Well, thanks, as always, for joining us. And, uh, Cliff, do you have a final question for Bob? I, I, I do, Bob. I would just like to know a little bit about how you're doing with your you know, your, your charitable work, because I, I know that you have a, you know, passion about, you know, working with youth and, and so on and so forth. If you could just kind of comment on that, I would appreciate it. Well, we uh, uh, years ago got involved. I was a, I'm a former school teacher, and years ago we got involved with uh, drug awareness programs for children, and uh, we started a program here called Say Yes to Fishing and No to Drugs, and we started it in 88, and it's still going strong today. And uh, we stocked a swimming pool downtown with about 2,500 trout and let all the children come down and fish. And 
in shifts, so to speak, and uh, and get out the anti-drug message as well as trying to teach them uh, an activity that they can recreate for the rest of their life. And uh, we started another, <laughs> excuse me, another program uh, called the Carp Master, where we took an underutilized resource, being the lowly carp. Everybody has a bass tournament or whatever. We took the carp, and we said, we're going to have a carp tournament. And we gave away a little rowboat and a trolling motor for first prize, biggest carp caught in a section of lake. And, uh, and that uh, money went to support the communities and schools. So, uh, yeah, we've done a, a little bit uh, as much as, we can to try to help the community in that area. I'm sure they appreciate it. I I certainly think that that is a good idea. And I'm a little bit upset with what is happening here in Pennsylvania. All of a sudden, a couple of young teenagers, when they need to go, if they want to go fishing, in the old days it was something like a whopping two or three or four dollars. Now it's all of a sudden they need a fishing license for thirty dollars. I much rather have those little kids on the river with a fishing rod than having them hanging around the corner at a uh, at a drugstore. And uh, unfortunately. Many young kids and their parents, they said, boy, 30 bucks, that is a little expensive for, you know, my kid to go out. I think that should be rethought and maybe be for for younger kids, it, uh, I, I guess up to, I don't know, 15, it's free, I am not sure, but something like that. Great idea, Dieter. Before we go, Bob, is there anything you'd like to add, anything we missed or, you know, just any comment you'd like to add before we go? I would just like to tell the listeners, if, if you are in the restoration business, you are a local cleaner, if you have a regional association that you could get membership in, uh, as an industry, we need to stick together. We need to educate ourselves and, and uh, help each other as much as we can. So uh, I, I would just encourage strongly anybody that uh, is, is looking for a place to go, Go to your regional associations and support them. That's great. I appreciate that. And I know that you were with Mid-South for a long time, continue to support them, and it's a, it sounds like it's helped you. Uh, Cliff and I have been trying to help sure, make sure that the tri-state, uh, especially cleaners, continues to help people in our area. And um, hopefully the regionals will start to get a little more uh, a little more activity as time goes on. A lot of people like to go to the national level, but... You know, I agree with you there, Bob. You got to got to work with your regional, and I know Dieter and I both belong to the local Pittsburgh AIHA section, and that's a great place to meet people and get to know what's going on in the industry. So, very much appreciated. And also, um, you joining us today is very much appreciated. We really uh, appreciate having you on, and I look forward to seeing you again at another conference in the near future. Thank you very much. All right. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thank you to today's guest, Bob Packrell, and, of course, to the Z-Man, Cliff, another great show. Yes, it was, Joe. Uh, to our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Of course, thanks to Jessica Lawson at the controls. Wow, what a beautiful day. No glitches. I just feel like I'm so relieved after all the problems we had with uh, Skype, uh, as it turns out. Great job. Uh, sounds like everything came through loud and clear. We'll be back next Friday. And, of course, thanks to our group of loyal listeners out there. We'll be back next Friday for the next episode of 
IAQ Radio. Uh-huh.